Hello and welcome to Freud in Focus, a podcast from the Freud Museum, which takes a closer look at some of Freud's most important texts. Now, last week, Jamie and I discussed a late paper by Freud entitled Constructions in Analysis. It's a paper in which Freud reflects on the development of psychoanalytic technique and also asks some fundamental questions about the notion of truth and the constructed nature of memory. Now, Jamie's not with us this week, but I'm delighted to welcome to the show Professor Miriam Leonard from University College London, one of the curators of our current exhibition and accompanying digital archive, Freud's Antiquity, Object, Idea, Desire. Miriam, welcome to the show. Hi, Tom. Delighted to be here. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Great. Thanks, Miriam. Um, first of all, I'd just like to start with the exhibition, actually. Could you just tell us a little bit about the new exhibition that we have on and the accompanying digital archive, please? Yes, of course. So um, anyone who's had the chance to visit the Freud Museum in London or who's seen um, images from Vienna of Freud's consulting room will be aware that Freud was an obsessive collector of objects. Um, not for him was the uncluttered blank space of the modern therapist office. Um, and um, in fact, Freud collected over 2,000 um, antiquities during his lifetime, and he started collecting um, these objects at a really interesting point in his life in the immediate aftermath of his father's death. And this was at the same time he was formulating his first psychoanalytic works like the interpretation of dreams. And these objects come from many places. They're not actually all antiquities, but the bulk of them are. Um, and the majority come from Egypt, Greece, and Rome. And uh, that really was uh, the focus um, of um, of this exhibition. And um, in this way, um, what we were trying to examine in some senses was the way that Freud, um, before the creation of the Freud Museum in London, had himself become almost the curator of his own museum in the acquisition and ordering of these objects in, in his own workspace. And that's where um, myself and my colleagues, uh, Daniel Orles at King's College London and Richard Armstrong from the University of Houston came in. The three of us are actually classicists. We work on Greco-Roman um, antiquity, but we're particularly interested in how uh, Greece and Rome have impacted on later cultures and how great thinkers like Freud uh, have imagined their own relationship to antiquity uh, in their works. And what we became fascinated by was the relationship between these objects in Freud's workspace uh, and um, the, 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 the representation of antiquity in Freud's writing. Um, Freud very rarely discusses um, his objects in his published works. There are a few isolated references, but he doesn't at any stage um, extensively discuss his own collection. But we had the intuition uh, that there was something more going on here. Uh, and that the objects could tell us something about the development of psychoanalysis. Uh, so that's that's where um, uh, we came in, and the idea that really drove um, the collection. Um, the other the other idea was uh, we've already talked about the kind of sheer number of objects that there are in this collection, and the sense that Freud inhabited this really rather cluttered workspace. And um, when you go to the the museum as it exists today, you can see uh, these objects. Um, and this is where, you know, Freud really was a kind of curator in the exact sort of positioning that Freud himself um, put them in. So this, the, 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 the um, consulting room reproduces exactly Freud's ordering um, of the objects, but they're often quite difficult to see. 
and in their sheer number, um, they become difficult to examine, different to, difficult to understand. And so one of the ideas behind the exhibition was to sort of isolate some of them, bring them out and look at them closely and do a kind of deep dive into these objects uh, to get a sense of their relationship to his work and also to wider kind of cultural developments at the time. And again, because the exhibition space is, is quite small and um, uh, and because we weren't able to do an, uh, a, a kind of exhaustive analysis of, of uh, the material there, what we actually did was we created a digital archive to accompany the exhibition, which allowed us to think more deeply about the objects, to connect them to, as I say, to wider cultural developments, uh, to, to developments within Freud's work um, itself. And there we've, we've also used things like um, uh, videos, so people who are not able to come to the, the exhibition in person um, can actually uh, get a sense of these objects and examine the objects um, for themselves and hear more about our own um, analysis of them through podcasts. Um, so there is, uh, alongside the physical exhibition, a lasting kind of legacy in a digital archive, which we hope people will find useful. Well, thanks, Miriam. That really nice kind of way into this discussion, actually, about thinking about these kind of these two layers, really, the, 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 the visible exhibition and then this kind of digital archive and, you know, the way that we um, can find out a great deal more that's not kind of, you know, obviously there on the surface by kind of digging into this archive, you know. So, um, you know, just carrying that thought on, I, I'd like to start actually with uh, archaeology, if I may. Um, so last week, Jamie read this long extended analogy comparing the work of an archaeologist to that of a psychoanalyst. Now, Freud was clearly very invested in this analogy. Um, last week, again, we discussed how, how rich and indulgent almost Freud's prose becomes in this passage. And of course, on this podcast series, we've discussed this before in Civilization and its Discontents, where Freud almost kind of waxes lyrical about archaeology. Now, this um, analogy is there really from the very beginning of Freud's psychoanalytic writing. Um, so I thought it might be quite nice to just read the first time that this analogy makes its appearance in an extended form at least. Um, and this is from The Etiology of Hysteria, a paper um, that was published in 1896. Now, if you'd like to follow this um, reading at home, it's in the standard edition. It's volume three, and it starts on page 192. <clears throat> so Freud is kind of setting the scene and asking us to think about how we can treat patients. And he begins his paragraph about archaeology in this way. Imagine that an explorer arrives in a little-known region where his interest is aroused by an expanse of ruins, with, half remain, with remains of walls, fragments of columns, and tablets uh, with half-effaced and unreadable inscriptions. He may content himself with inspecting what lies exposed to view, with questioning the inhabitants, perhaps semi-barbaric people who live in the vicinity, about what tradition tells them of the history and meaning of these archaeological remains. And with noting down what they tell him, he may then proceed on his journey. But he may act differently. He may have brought picks, shovels and spades with him, and he may set the inhabitants to work with these implements. 
Together with them, he may start upon the ruins, clear away the rubbish, and, beginning from the visible remains, uncover what is buried. If his work is crowned with success, the discoveries are self-explanatory. The ruined walls are part of the ramparts of a palace or a treasure house. The fragments of columns can be filled out into a temple. The numerous inscriptions, which by good luck may be bilingual, reveal an alphabet and a language, and when they've been deciphered and translated, yield undreamed of information about the events of the remote past to commemorate which the monuments were built. Saxar Luquantor. That's um, from the Standard Edition, Volume 3, page 192. Well, firstly, Miriam, apologies for my dodgy Latin at the end there. Saxar Luquantor, I think that's how you pronounce it at least. I mean, this Freud, this phrase that um, Freud leaves us with kind of roughly translates to something like the stones are speaking, right? Yeah. Um, so, Miriam, why was Freud so interested in archaeology? And, and what's he driving at here with this analogy? Yeah, well, perfect. <laughs> um, but um, I think I think there are lots of ways of, of, of understanding Freud's interest in the archaeology. But I think we'll start with his personal interest. Um, and Freud was writing in a period of great archaeological discoveries. Um, he was contemporaneous with some of the kind of great um, uh, celebrity archaeologists, uh, such as um, uh, Heinrich Schliemann and Arthur Evans, uh, who were themselves, you know, associated with these great extraordinary discoveries of what were seen as kind of difficult to comprehend civilization, Mycenaean civilization, the story of the Trojan uh, War. These were sort of, if you like, these these great mysteries that archaeology saw itself as, as playing a role in uncovering. And um, this was a, very much something that captured the popular imagination. So Freud was certainly not alone in having um, uh, an interest uh, in um, in this this form uh, of archaeology, and you can see through the passage that you were discussing the quite the kind of romanticism of of uh, his engagement here. And and instead of calling them archaeologists in this passage, he actually calls them explorers. So you get there that sense of of um, you know seeing these archaeologists in a tradition of the great explorers of the world. Um, so I think there was a kind of very personal interest, but one which you've already said uh, was linked to a um, uh, a, a more um, a prominent kind of uh, a cultural phenomenon, which was the, the deep interest in archaeology at a quite a popular level, that this was something that was reported in the press extensively. On the other hand, archaeology had a kind of scientific dimension. Um, archaeology was one of the kind of great sciences of the 19th century, and the, during the 19th century, it moved from being um, a, a, um, a, a a practice associated with a kind of gentlemanly, the um, gentlemanly explorer, if you like, to actually becoming one of the kind of hard sciences um, uh, in in the nineteenth century, where different techniques uh, were being developed at all times, um, and um, and the other way in which it became so kind of associated with science was was the possibility through archaeology of really kind of touching the past. There was something um, to do with the kind of you know, the hard materiality, the hard reality uh, of the stones that uh, that Freud uh, talks about, which contrasted with with the idea of history as a form of narrative, if you like. 
Um, so I think that definitely appealed to Freud, the, the sense that there was something tangible there, that possibility of being able to touch um, touch the past. Um, and I think there is some interesting um, distinctions, if you like, between the the, uh, the the description of archaeology that you just gave us from the very early uh, texts on the etiology of hysteria, and then the late um, description that you um, uh, uh, talked about uh, last time uh, mm. from um, uh, constructions, because I think almost you have that two sides of archaeology in in this um, uh, period. Uh, Freud is really, as I say dealing with that kind of more romantic conception of archaeology, uh, that idea of archaeology as a form of exploration. And later you see an element of the more kind of scientific dimension coming through, the awareness of the kind of techniques of science. In fact, Freud uh, references in um, in constructions that the, the techniques of stratigraphy, things which were uh, de developments which were associated with the scientific dimension of archaeology through contemporaries of Freud, such as Lindus Petrie, who was very much associated with that. So he's actually kind of quite specifically referencing um, scientific developments within archaeology in that later uh, model. The other difference, I think, is um, is to do with the um, what uh, what Freud sees the archaeologists finding in this um, description. What they uncover are temples and columns and palaces, you know, mm -hmm. all, all uh, archaeological sites and anyone who's done any archaeology uh, will be aware that these are incredibly rare finds what you spend most of your time finding as archaeologists is you know very small fragments of, of pots things from everyday life and again this is a difference with his later discussion where in fact it is those kind of um, uh, um, disjointed objects elements which were overlooked that Freud finds so interesting in his later discussion which contrasts with this earlier idea of um, of uh, archaeology being the kind of, as I said, in the kind of Schliemann mode, the discovery of great civilizations of of um, you know beautiful objects. So I think that 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 gives a sense of how he has quite a complex understanding of archaeology and how it evolves over time and how it does different things for him. On the one hand, it is that discovery of the the beautiful shining object. Uh, that that um, uh, draws him. On the other hand, it's the idea that archaeology is kind of digging into the dirt and digging in and and finding kind of things which look on the surface to be insignificant, but actually have a um, a, a profound uh, understand uh, you know a profound meaning. And that's where the the real analogy comes uh, for psychoanalysis. The analogy really is about how um, archaeology can be, uh, the, the work of the archaeologist can be analogized to that of the psychoanalyst, the psychoanalyst who, and I think this is very clear in the passage from the etiology of, um, uh, uh, of hysteria, the psychoanalyst, uh, psychoanalyst who wants to look beneath the surface. You know, the psychoanalyst could rely on other people's evidence, could rely on what is on the surface, uh, but actually uh, what what distinguishes psychoanalysis from other modes is the desire to look beneath, the desire to probe, uh, the desire to dig, to go beyond the symptom to the origin. And I think that's why archaeology became such an important um, mode for thinking about psychoanalysis for Freud. That's really interesting. It's almost like we you see this kind of movement from a kind of heroic narrative early on, don't we? This kind of you know this explorer, this kind of forsherer is a German word, isn't it? Into this um kind of more perhaps more humble uh more kind of um analytic kind of mode later um 
dealing with, as you said, rather than dealing with uh, temples and palaces that kind of reveal themselves to this kind of um, heroic explorer. It's more to do with the digging in the dirt and the kind of cleaning away fragments and trying to piece them together. Doing the kind of, the, you know, the, the, the dirty work, as it were, doing yeah. the kind of, you know, slow, painstaking kind of work of construction. Yeah. I think um, there's also, sorry, no, from from the early passage where it's really kind of an image of the kind of colonial archaeologist, the archaeologist mm. who goes there and finds stuff out with, um, you know, for himself, you know, that he who's suspicious of local information and he goes there to, to the later um, analysis where the desire of the analyst comes in, where that there's much more sort of self-reflection about what the role of, if you like, the kind of colonial explorer in in the colonies is that they have that they're not just discovering things; they're also shaping their discoveries in various sorts of ways. So I think that's it's also quite interesting. From that. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, kind of moving from this colonial, from a kind of maybe kind of late nineteenth century to a kind of more modern, you know, more complex, more kind of um, an, an awareness of that kind of colonial past coming into something that's much more difficult and fragmented and multi dimensional really um and archae i mean archaeology is where we start here isn't it but i mean of course freud was fascinated not just in archaeology but with antiquity more generally um and we know of course that probably his most famous return to antiquity to the ancient world was this continued kind of use and resource of the the oedipus myth you know which we get of course from this very early letters to fleece um throughout his work um, that later turns into the Oedipus complex. Um, we also know that in the interpretation of dreams, of course, he kind of almost suggests that he's on the side of the ancients, doesn't he? By by thinking that dreams have meaning, albeit subjective meaning rather than objective meaning. So Freud's relationship to the ancient world, not just to archaeology, but to the ancient world more generally, is seems to be very productive. Um, You've spoken a bit about Freud's the historical uh, situation, how you situate Freud historically when it comes to um, archaeology, that it's not just a kind of personal idiosyncrasy, but it's also a kind of something that was in the zeitgeist, you know, something that was in the air. Is that something that we can also say about Freud's relationship to the ancient world? I mean, was that a, a kind of a big concern, you know, in this in this period that Freud was kind of studying and, and growing up in? Absolutely. And I think that's why Freud is such an interesting figure, because he kind of bridges that very idiosyncratic relationship to antiquity. One that, as you, as you were talking about in terms of his letters to Fleece, that he sort of, you know, he, he first identifies in himself this Oedipus complex. So there's something very, very personal about that, um, about that relationship. But he bridges that with a much broader cultural fascination um, uh, with uh, Greco-Roman antiquity. Um, I'll talk a little bit in a minute about Oedipus and the specificity of, of tragedy. Uh, but there is, as I say, a much broader context in which, in particular, the kind of German-speaking world found themselves completely enamored, particularly with Greek civilization, from about the middle of the 18th century onwards. And this was a kind of continuous dialogue in German literature and German philosophy. Um, and Freud was deeply uh, versed in this material. And in fact, his education at a, what was called a, a classical gymnasium um, was was saturated with information about antiquity. He would have spent quite a large proportion of his week um, translating Latin and Greek and finding out about the civilizations of, of Greece and Rome. 
Uh, so it was really very much part of his cultural um, education and one that he would have shared with um, people throughout the German-speaking world, not just the German-speaking world, but it was particularly prominent in, in the German-speaking world. So there is that broader uh, background. But then there's something in, in terms of Freud's relationship to, to Oedipus more specific about the cultural valuation of tragedy in this period. Uh, tragedy became the kind of genre which became um, associated uh, not just with the kind of highest aesthetic qualities, but also with um, a, a, a almost a kind of metaphysical force. It was it was understood as being the answer to many of the questions about humanity, the meaning of life and death, um, ethics, politics, subjectivity. Lots of uh, figures that turned to tragedy since roughly the beginning of the 19th century to discuss those kinds of issues. And we can think of great philosophers such as Hegel, but um, in more immediate terms for uh, for Freud, Nietzsche, uh, whose entire sort of corpus was marked by analyses of tragedy. So tragedy had a very particular uh, role to play in the kind of German imagination um, in the period that Freud uh, was, was writing. And we can see what one of the ideas in the exhibition was to try and link that um, you know, we, we all know that Freud was interested in, in, in Oedipus and that Oedipus was such an important um, figure for him. But one thing that we tried to, to do was to see, the, uh, to, to link that interest in his writings to the objects in his collection. And actually, it's quite interesting things emerge from that. Uh, Freud had a number of ancient objects associated uh, with, with Oedipus, um, in particular, um, he had a um, uh, Idria, Greek um, uh, um, uh, jug, um, uh, uh, but uh, and so, and then a whole series of um, in 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 um, which represented the story of Oedipus's encounter with the Sphinx, and then he had a large number of sphinxes. <laughs> but in particular, the image that Freud looked at every day, which was associated with Oedipus, was a small reproduction. Um, of a painting uh, by the neoclassical French painter um, Ingres, uh, Jean-Auguste Dominique Ingres, which was painted in 1908, uh, sorry, 1808, so the very beginning of the um, 19th century. And this was the image of Oedipus um, that Freud hung at the foot of the couch in his Vienna consultant. So as I say, as he faced his patients, if he wasn't sitting at the end of the, of the, uh, of the couch, um, what he would have seen was this image of Oedipus. He was analyzing and um, uh, and diagnosing Oedipus complexes in his his patients. Uh, the image of Oedipus that he would have been confronted with was this um, uh, image of Ang's um, uh, representation of Oedipus. And what Ang's uh, representation shows us is uh, Oedipus again in his encounter with the Sphinx. Now, this is a part of the story of Oedipus that actually. He doesn't reference in the famous passage from the interpretation of dreams um, in his recounting the story because there the, the emphasis is all on the um, uh, uh, the uh, hatred that, that um, uh, Oedipus has for his father and the murder um, uh, that uh, uh, commits um, it, it, and and on the incest um, uh, uh, which he then commits with his mother in its wake. Um, so that the um, the in the the story of Oedipus's encounter with the Sphinx actually happens between those two events, those two kind of seminal events, and as I say, doesn't really appear in Freud's published work on Oedipus. But 
but this was the image with which Freud uh, surrounded himself. The the um, the reason why I think it's particularly uh, interesting is one, um, he chose a very 19th century representation of Oedipus to look at, mm-hmm. um, representation which was deeply steeped in the kind of tradition that I was talking about, was revaluation tragedy. This idea that Oedipus represented somehow a um, uh, an answer to the mystery of what it was to be human. And the particular um, in, uh, part of the story, the encounter with the Sphinx, actually replays that question, that the center of that encounter is the questioning of the Sphinx about the nature of humanity. Famously asked Freud, uh, to ask you to first uh, what goes on uh, four feet um, in the morning, uh, uh, two in the afternoon and three in the evening. And the answer to that is man, man who moves from his childhood through his adult into um, a similarity the use of the stick um, uh, for his three feet there. So man is the, actually the answer to the riddle of the Sphinx. And in that sense, I think you can get there uh, a sense of why Freud was interested in this question. Freud was interested in in solving the riddle of humanity, um, and and there we see a strong identification uh, with Oedipus in that um, in that task. But on the other hand, it's quite paradoxical because what we have in Ant's neoclassical image is an image of Oedipus, the height of his intellectual powers. This is the Oedipus who solves the riddle of the Sphinx, the, uh, the Oedipus who uses his human e- intellect to overcome this mysterious, bestial, feminine, oriental figure of the Sphinx. And not the Oedipus who emerges from Freud, who is so much more strongly associated with irrational, with the irrational, with, with um, you know, murderous and incestuous desires. And so there's a sort of paradox in him having this image there, uh, which gives us this kind of dual image of Oedipus. Oedipus is both the man who knows too little and the man who knows too much. And I think that's one of, um, it gives a kind of, sense of why Oedipus was such a powerful figure for, for Freud, that he wasn't, you know, we, we tend to think about Freud's understanding of Oedipus so tied up with sets of murder and violence, but actually one of the things that was so compelling for Freud in his reading of Greek tragedy, in his reading of um, Sophocles' Greek tragedy in particular, uh, was how Oedipus is driven by a desire for knowledge. And I think that really does give us a, a different understanding of Oedipus. Uh, and one that his objects in the collection leads us to more. Mm. Yes, I mean, it's an amazing, um, it's amazing kind of doubling, really, isn't it? Or a, or a kind of coming together of the rational and the irrational that we get with Oedipus, like you said, that, you know, the positions that um, one takes, not just within the Oedipus complex itself, but as the analyst who kind of is confronted with this kind of, you know, recurrent, you know, repetitive um, complex arising on the couch, you know, where, where is the rationality? Where's the irrationality? You know, where, you know, who is Freud identifying with, you know, who is the patient, who's the analyst, I guess, you know, so there's so much, isn't there? I think that we can do to think about kind of how, where Freud takes Oedipus from and, and, and where he, where he sends his Oedipus on his, on his pathway to, you know, um, Oedipus is both the, in Freud, the, the the problem solver and the problem, you know, the the riddle solver and the riddle himself. So, um, just to go on a, a little bit more, then talk a bit more about the the exhibition, Miriam, if I may. Um, so the exhibition itself looks at six moments in Freud's career, um, and these moments uh, are all about 
places where he draws on antiquity to help develop theory. Um, or perhaps more accurately, when it comes to the exhibition, um, we want to use objects from his collection to, uh, as really like as tools to help us re-engage and reinterpret Freud's theory. It's, it's a big claim, of course, but you know that's I think one of the underlying kind of desires that we have, you know, uh, with the exhibition. Um, you've spoken about the Ong prints of Oedipus and the Sphinx. Of course, it was positioned next to the couch in Vienna. As almost a kind of gateway into Freud's engagement with the classical past. But I'd like to look at um, one other example, um, one other visual representation, another object, in fact, which the exhibition highlights. And it's an etching of Moses brandishing the tablets of the law um, after the famous painting by Rembrandt, which is now in Berlin, I think. Um, Miriam, now you've written extensively on Freud's uh, ambivalent relationship to his Jewish heritage. So how can this image um, of Moses brandishing the tablets of the law help us think about Freud's Jewishness, particularly in relation to his final completed work, Moses and Monotheism? Thanks so much, Tom. I, I think it's a great opportunity to discuss how um, the exhibition doesn't, so we've, we've made a lot of his relationship to Greece and Rome, mm. but how the exhibition doesn't just cover his objects which are related to Greece and Rome. And it and it's quite interesting um, from a uh, perspective of, of, of his collection uh, that there are we, you know, um, not many Jewish objects uh, in, in his collection. Uh, Freud was famously not a practicing Jew, uh, and uh, didn't keep many sort of ritual objects in his home, but we do have uh, one of his um, menorahs, his Hanukkiahs, uh, in in the collection, just to show that there was a sort of trace of that Jewish identity there. Um, but we actually have a whole wall in the exhibition, one of two, uh, which is devoted to objects which are not from Greece and Rome, really to show the diversity of Freud's collection and to show how Freud thought about antiquity in a in a relatively global way. He was he was interested in the kind of interconnections between Greece and Rome and Egypt, but also Mesopotamia. Um, he has some you know, Indian objects in his collection, uh, some Chinese objects. So in fact, he didn't have, um, which was quite interesting for a figure of his time, he didn't have a kind of uh, taxonomy in terms of cultures and uh, religions and so on. He actually mixed his collection up uh, altogether and, and had this really quite broad um, uh, approach to antiquity, but specifically in relation to his his Judaism, um, what we what, what we have represented um, in uh, this um, uh, this image is a clue to Freud's investment in Judaism, his ambivalent investment in Judaism. Um, and during the course of um, Moses and monotheism, there is one very important chapter uh, which is called uh, the Advance in Intellectuality where he talks about what is specific about the emergence uh, of Judaism. So the, the book, Moses and Monotheism, addresses particularly the monotheistic dimension um, of Judaism. And this advance in, in intellectuality for Freud is associated with that, that move from a kind of polytheistic culture to a monotheistic culture. But in particular, one strand within Judaism, uh, which was the prohibition against images. Um, what Freud argues there is that this rejection of images, this rejection almost of kind of the material world, um, le leads the Freud uh, leads the Jews to a more kind of abstract comprehension of the world. Um, what we have in the desire not to kind of represent the deity is a 
um, uh, an impulse towards a more kind of intellectual comprehension of the deity. Mm. And this book for Freud is a really important part of the development of Judaism. And he associates it in this chapter with the concept of instinctual renunciation. And in the figure of Moses brandishing um, uh, the laws, what we have there is a figure who is is um, uh, driven to anger, but actually holds back from his anger. And what Freud becomes interested in is how the Jews over their history have practiced this form of instinctual renunciation, uh, primarily through this prohibition against um, graven images, uh, and how this has propelled the Jews towards a more um, intellectual, uh, a more spiritual, uh, a more abstract relationship to the world. Now, this was a really interesting thing for Freud to do, because we've already talked about, through the figure of Oedipus, I suppose, how the Greeks had traditionally, in kind of German thought, been associated with the, with the domains of the intellect, the domains of reason. Uh, whereas um, the Jews had often been found lacking in this um, uh, dimension. Here we find uh, Freud making a uh, a claim that it's the Jews rather, if you like, than the Greeks or the Jews pr uh, first of all, who have this movement towards the intellect and this movement away from the senses. And um, and I think this this is a, a source of pride for, for Freud. I mean, we. The, you've thought about civilization and its discontents. And obviously Freud has an ambivalent relationship to this question of instinctual renunciation. But actually in Moses and Monotheism, it's a it's a deeply praising passage. It's a passage where he really admires the Jews for, for their ability uh, to have progressed in that way. And he compares them directly to the Greeks in this passage. Um, so it's, it's a very interesting kind of reversal of that hierarchy of Greeks and Jews, which had been a very prominent one in, in German thought. So this text, Moses and Monotheism, I think really is an uh, absolutely crucial text for understanding Freud's ambivalent Judaism. And I think, if I may, I'll, I'll just read you the first sentence of the text because I think it encapsulates exactly that ambivalence. Please, he writes, yeah. to deny a people the man whom it praises as the greatest of his sons is not a deed to be undertaken lightheartedly, especially by one belonging to that people. And here I think what we have Freud saying um, is that First of all, that identification as a Jew, he, he sees himself as belonging to that people, um, and an uncomplicated identification with uh, with with Judaism, um, or with the Jewish people, um, I should say. Uh, but on the other hand, and a desire to deny the Jews of the person um, that the greatest of its sons, this this uh, this drive uh, to all that into question to call conventional Judaism into question. And he'll do that in Moses and Monotheism by arguing that Moses was not a Jew, but an Egyptian. So he rereads the biblical story in a counterintuitive way uh, to, to argue uh, that Oedipus, uh, sorry, <laughs> that Moses, um, and Oedipus is not irrelevant here, uh, but mm -hmm. that Moses um, uh, actually was, was uh, brought up uh, uh, was was a part of an aristocratic Egyptian family uh, who later went on uh, to uh, to found uh, the Jewish uh, religion and to unite the Jewish people. In addition to that, and this is where Oedipus comes in, um, uh, um, uh, Freud makes the kind of outrageous claim that his first Moses was in fact murdered by the Jews, uh, and it was the guilt uh, associated with this murder which propels the kind of religion of Judaism. So he actually uses a kind of Oedipal model for understanding um, the story uh, of, of, of Moses, but in a way he sort of uh, upstages Oedipus 
uh, by arguing that actually this was originally a Jewish story, not a Greek story. Um, but, but the historical context of the composition of this text is absolutely crucial for understanding that first um, sentence. Freud was writing this um, uh, text in the, in the later 1930s at a time uh, of the progress of Nazism uh, and in the immediate, um, uh, uh, just, he was writing the text just uh, as he was um, preparing for his exile uh, from Vienna uh, after the Anschluss. Uh, and so this was a time of incredible peril for the Jewish people. And so that Freud wrote this text, which has this very you know, provocative rewriting of Judaism. It seems like a very interesting historical moment to have done that. An interesting moment personally for him, but also from a much broader historical perspective. Um, and people have had very more, very varied readings of this text. Um, because of that, some people were really have been quite shocked by it, shocked by it. this what they saw as an act of kind of Jewish self-hatred of Freud, that he wanted to deny the story of Moses to the Jews at a time when they were, as I said, at this great peril. But a figure like um, Edward Said, in his last work, he wrote a book called Freud and, non, and the Non-European, and he celebrated Freud's text, Moses and Monotheism, specifically at this historical moment, that Freud was prepared at this historical moment to make a claim about the interconnectedness of ancient cultures, to show that um, Moses's identity was a hybrid identity, that he wasn't associated with a kind of racial or religious purity, which was so key to the kind of um, uh, Nazi ideology at this time, this idea that you could distinguish between races uh, in this very particular uh, sort of way with very horrific consequences. And um, Edward Said sees employed, I think you talked about this in the other um, um, uh, podcast, an instance in Moses and Monotheism of what he calls late style. Uh, this is Freud who is prepared to question the basis of his identity in a very, very um, uh, uh, brave way, in a way, but, but one which I think has real messages for us thinking forward about these questions of religious violence, racial purity, and so on and so forth. So there are, are very many different ways of interpreting this text, and certainly ambivalence is at its core. Uh, but I think there is something here both about Freud's actual deep admiration of the Jewish people, but his contestation of this idea of kind of racial and religious purity, which I think is um, actually quite you know um, uh, a foresight of Freud's uh, that he was able to question that. And also this sense, as I say, of the multiplicity of ancient cultures, the idea that ancient cultures were this hybrid place, this place where, in fact, you can't separate out a Jewish narrative from a Jewish narrative, an Egyptian narrative from uh, uh, a Jewish narrative. And in fact, they're all deeply interconnected. It's wonderful, Miriam. Thank you. And, and you know, drawing on remembering, uh, obviously, the, the text, uh, Freud and the non-European, Said's, uh, you know, I think, final completed work, um, which was, of course, delivered um, for the Freud Museum in London um, um, at, at the time. Um, so that, I mean, it's a, it was an amazing kind of event. Apparently, I wasn't there myself. But, you know, just to think about this um, way of, 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 you know, this controversy around, you know, that final text of Freud, Said kind of re-engaging with that controversy and, and kind of re-emphasizing the hybridity of identity, right? the kind of the multifaceted nature um, of identity and in a very kind of liberatory and liberatory way, really. I mean, so this kind of this text that Freud starts with Moses and 
monotheism saying um, that you know it's no light thing to deprive the Jewish people of, of the, the you know their favorite son or words to that effect you know that leads to this this kind of um, liberatory kind of discourse you know which is which as you said is uh, creates such an ambivalent response it's an ambivalent text itself but it creates such an ambivalent response um thinking about hybridity actually um we don't have a great deal of time left so um i'm going to think a bit in a with that notion of hybridity because obviously this is a this is a hybrid exhibition you know we've um we've talked about the fact that there's a physical exhibition and a digital archive and of course we've been thinking thinking about freud who is thinking about antiquity you know there's this kind of there's this continual deferring of where we are here um, where is the original scene? You know, where is where is antiquity in this? Where is Freud in all of this? Um, so it feels to me like we've we've got ourselves somehow, Miriam, into this very kind of multi-layered, multi-dimensional space. So I want to think just finally in a, in a kind of meta way, really, um, through this exhibition and these discussions, it appears that um, for Freud and perhaps for us that the past uh, never really is a, a static thing. You know, waiting for us to discover it, like perhaps it was in that early text I read from Ageology of Hysteria. But that it takes on new forms, actually, the past and, and new aspects every time that we engage with it. Um, so just as in Freud's later formulation from this paper, um, Constructions and Analysis, reconstruction always seems to kind of slide towards construction. And so the search for origins, in a way, seems to be almost doomed from the outset. Um, I'm going to leave you, um, Miriam, to kind of unpack some of these ideas for us at the end. Sorry to, to, to dump this on you, but um, how can we think about the status of objects, Miriam, with, you know, under these ideas? And how can psychoanalysis help us to think about maybe the stability or otherwise of objects themselves? Yeah, that's great. And the word archaeology actually is quite an interesting place to start because the concept of arche um, uh, from uh, archaeology actually means origin, beginning, and, and that kind of uh, idea. So we can see, as we've already mentioned, how Freud is interested in psychoanalysis, not just um, in uh, the symptoms, but in the deep origins of symptoms. And by analogy, antiquity is in, in some ways a kind of deep origin of our cultures. We, we go to, uh, uh, we, we understand ourselves today, not by just sort of looking at the surface, but looking more deeply into our origins. So there is that idea that archaeology can bring us to our origins. But there's also in the concept of archae, um, the notion it also means to rule or to direct. Uh, so in other words, we choose or shape or rule our origins as much as we discover them. Um, and the desire uh, to know the truth of antiquity is also the desire of the collector and uh, the story he chooses to tell about those origins. And our own reactions are also implicated in this web of desire. So archaeology is not about this kind of stable origin. It's also about that investment of the archaeologist, that investment of the collector, that investment of the psychoanalyst, if you like, in the construction of origin too. And in the uh, exhibition, I think we we try to illustrate this a little bit with uh, the example of, of, of one of the objects, uh, which was an Etruscan jug. Um, and uh, we included this object uh, in the collection, um, not uh, 
almost not for its own purposes, but actually to reference a um, another Etruscan um, uh, object that Freud talks about in the interpretation of dreams. Um, Freud, in interpretation of dreams, talks about a dream he has about an Etruscan cinnary urn, and that's that's an urn which keeps the ashes of the dead. Um, and uh, Freud had actually swapped this collection, uh, sorry, this object in his collection with another, so he'd actually lost possession of this object. And in, in interpretation of dreams, he talks about a, a dream he has about um, uh, this uh, lost or, or this uh, forsaken um, uh, object uh, within uh, his collection. Um, and uh, talks about how uh, Martha um, uh, allows him to drink from this scenery home. So the, the dream is about his thirst, but also there's this incredible image of Martha um, uh, uh, making Freud drink from a, from the ashes of the dead. I mean, it's a very, very weird and slightly repulsive image. Uh, but one of the things we wanted to show there was that the objects in his collection are also traces of the lost objects. Uh, they're traces of the lost objects, um, uh, uh, physical objects, but also a interesting kind of have this interesting kind of spectral relationship to his writings. Uh, that his right in that case, in a way, it's the writings which are giving us a kind of you know a a, a deeper understanding of the object, um, uh, and and also the instability of the object. The object is not there necessarily to kind of stabilize the kind of evanescent. Text, the text which we can't pin down, but rather it's the other way around that the text uh, is showing us how the object itself can't be pinned down. This Etruscan uh, jug stands in for the lost jug, which itself stands in for all of these other things, like potentially, you know, uh, Martha's desire to make Freud death in some form or another. Um, so, um, so I think that was one of the things that we wanted to do was this idea that not to kind of fetishize the object, to move away from that idea of archaeology, giving us this access to a kind of stable past, this notion that if we touch the stones, that the stones speak in this unmediated form to us. The stones only speak if we are prepared to listen to them or understand them or interpret them. And I think that was one of the ideas that we really wanted to convey in the exhibition. It's wonderful, Miriam. Thank you so much. I mean, that really gives us an insight, I think, into, into you know, why psychoanalysis as well, because psychoanalysis thinks about the object, you know, the original object as being lost, doesn't it? And and all of our attempts, our desires, you know, our ways of trying to recreate and refine that object, you know, desire is never going to be kind of fully satisfied, just as the collector's desire is never fully satisfied in the collection. You know, you always need that extra piece, don't you, just to kind of finish it off, just to kind of, to, to you know, to complete it. But that piece never does satisfy the, the collection that we're always looking to, for more. So um, that really gives us, Miriam, um, a fascinating insight, I think, into this kind of complex and multifaceted relationship that Freud had to antiquity and and how intimately it was bound up with his psychoanalytic discoveries. So thank you so much, Miriam, for, for everything um, you've done for the exhibition and uh, for the archive as well, and also for joining us today on the programme. Thank you so much. It's been a wonderful experience. Thanks. I'd also um, like to say a sincere thank you. Um, Miriam mentioned earlier uh, Richard Armstrong to Richard Armstrong from the University of Houston and Daniel Orles to King, uh, from King's College London for all of the research and work and the time that they put in along with Miriam to developing this um, exhibition and this wonderful kind of resource of the digital archive that we have now. 
Um, if you'd like to learn more about this project, then please do come along and see our current exhibition, um, Freud's Antiquity Object Idea Desire, which is on until the 16th of July. If you can't make it to the museum, then the digital archive that accompanies the exhibition holds a mine of information, including videos, podcasts, rotating photographs, newly commissioned text panels, all that can all offer you a chance to dig even deeper into Freud's antiquity. Now, the digital archive is free to access and it can be found at www.freud.org.uk. Now, next time, Jamie and I will be answering your questions on this show. So if you have any questions you'd like to ask us about Freud's paper, Constructions in Analysis, about Freudian archaeology, or indeed anything that we've discussed over the last two episodes, then please, uh, you can leave a comment on our website on the, the page for the um, for the podcast, or you can email me at tom at freud.org.uk. And goodbye for now, and thanks for listening to Freud in Focus. Mm-hmm.